this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. My name is Abdul Elnajar, and I'm one of the thoracic surgery fellows here at the Cleveland Clinic. And this morning, I have Dr. Daniel Raymond. Um, Dr. Raymond is one of the senior thoracic surgeons here at the Cleveland Clinic with a special interest in lung, lung uh, cancer as well as uh, chest wall reconstruction. Dr. Raymond, thank you for being here with us today. Oh, thank you. So we'll uh, start off with a case. Um, this is a 60-year-old man, 60-pack uh, here smoker, is referred to you following an evaluation for a cough, which culminated into the identification of a 4-centimeter left hilar mass. A whole-body PET CT has been performed and showed a mass with involvement of the distal left main pulmonary artery, an SUV max of 11, but no evidence of mediastinal adenopathy or distant metastasis. What is your differential at this point, and how would you like to proceed with that patient? Well, I think the um, the obvious in the differential would be primary lung cancer. Certainly a major concern would be um, a, um, a small cell cancer as well, although the lack of mediastinal adenopathy um, pushes that lower on the list. Um, as far as benign causes of hilar masses, you could be talking about some type of unusual um, adenopathy, maybe histo or fibrosing mediastinitis or uh, rare types of primary cancers. But I really think your job in this circumstance is to exclude cancer as a diagnosis. So to proceed, I, I, I kind of break this down into a few components. Um, first is the um, staging evaluation. And he has had a PET-CT um, to complete the staging evaluation, giving the uh, the I would perform an MRI of the brain as his probability of um, of uh, um, brain metastasis is high enough to warrant some kind of screening study, even in the if there's a, no um, um, neurologic symptoms. Um, I would perform a full cardiopulmonary assessment. Um, from a pulmonary perspective, we would uh, you do the standard stuff, uh, pulmonary function tests. With a large distal left main, uh, uh, large mass in the, I would also uh, perform a quantitative VQ scan. As one, I would anticipate there is likely a need for um, uh, pneumonectomy, um, and therefore I would want to know could the patient tolerate that. Uh, oftentimes, the uh, PFTs alone are not adequate for that purpose. We like to perform six-minute walk tests on all patients. I, I think either that or making sure you perform a, a fairly thorough history on exercise tolerance is important. Um, and as far as pulmonary, um, as far as cardiac testing, it would make sense to perform some type of stress test uh, given the man's age, um, pack your smoking history. In this circumstance, I think the ideal stress test is a stress echo because not only do you get uh, evidence regarding a um, potential inducible myocardial ischemia, but you get a look at uh, right heart function, um, which is an important factor in making a decision regarding tolerance for major lung resection. Okay. Um, so now is the, that enough? Absolutely. <laughs> Am I passing? <laughs> <laughs> so now the uh, PFT is revealing FEV1 of 2.6 liters, um, DLCO of 68%. 
uh, stress echo showed no reversible defect. Bronchoscopy reveals a tumor involving the secondary corina on the left without extension along the main stem bronchus. Biopsy reveals a squamous cell cancer. There's no radiogra radiographic evidence of metastatic disease. PET-CT is reportedly positive in the left tidal lymph nodes, and EBUS evaluation of immediate astinal, uh, nodes is negative. How would you like to proceed? Um, so with secondary, a squamous cell carcinoma with secondary uh, carina involvement, um, that's basically mandating that you're going to need to do, um, likely do a um, pneumonectomy. There still remains the possibility of a sleeve resection. However, it's been my clinical experience that whenever you attempt this, you really compromise margins fairly significantly. So I'm, I always would go to the pneumonectomy if the patient can tolerate it. So generally, again, um, with these pulmonary function tests, one would assume that uh, the patient has adequate function. However, I, I standardly would get a quantitative BQ scan anyways in this circumstance. It's not absolutely necessary, but I like to um, use it to prognosticate postoperative function because my suspicion is that the left lung is doing less than the standard 45% function. It's not absolutely necessary, though. Um, given the rest of this study, though, um, we didn't see an MRI brain result. Let's assume that's negative. negative. Um, then I believe the next step would be to proceed to um, surgical resection. Now, um, because uh, the PET scan and the EBUS are concordant in the mediastinum, meaning there were no positive mediastinal, radiographically positive mediastinal nodes, and the EBUS was negative in the mediastinum, that would I would not think that a um, mediastinoscopy is absolutely um, necessary, um, but you can definitely argue either way on the application of mediastinoscopy in this circumstance. Our, our group has actually made, our, our whole cancer team has made algorithms in these scenarios. And generally, when we have concordance between EBUS findings and uh, radiographic findings, we do not proceed with mediastinoscopy. So in this circumstance, we would not proceed. Um, certainly, we would have to have a discussion with the patient regarding our plans, um, which would be um, a, a, a pneumonectomy as the primary surgery. One of the things um, that affects my surgical decision-making is, um, and it may not be for others, but um, the question is, can this be done with a minimally invasive approach? Um, and left pneumonectomies actually are, are not terribly difficult to do by a VATS procedure. Um, I do not uh, perform robotic lung resections. Um, I think this, that's of secondary importance. What can be disruptive to performing a minimally invasive pneumonectomy is that we should always be trying to preserve lung. And so if there's any chance of performing a sleeve resection, we should try to do that first, which mandates, in my opinion, mandates an open approach. Certainly, there are uh, surgeons who can do um, minimally invasive sleeve resections. Uh, I have not gone down that path. So um, I would have to have a long talk with the patient. I would discuss... Uh, the surgical approach, if I felt the pneumonectomy was warranted, I would simply commit to that and then talk about a VATS pneumonectomy or um, talk about um, a sleeve resection and open approach. Sounds great. Um, and um, 
Could you please talk us through a, uh, the operative steps for a left pneumonectomy? So, um, you want to do it open let's, or fast? Let's do an open approach. Okay. Um, so I always, I liked, um, I always start with a camera, um, simply to exclude, uh, pleural carcinomatosis. It would, it would be a terrible finding to do a full thoracotomy and find that the patient's unresectable. So after the patient has been induced, uh, and if we're planning on having a, um, doing a thoracotomy, I would have an epidural placed. If we were planning to do it by VATS, I would not, I would simply use intercostal chest wall blocks. Um, I would, so he's, the patient's got his epidural in, he's got his um, additional IV access and a, a radial arterial line and a Foley catheter. I do not believe that central, um, uh, a central line is necessary in this circumstance. Um, and oftentimes that's dependent upon the anesthesiologist. However, I'm, I'm very comfortable doing this without a central line. Um, and then um, the general approach would be from, uh, the patient would be in right lateral decubitus position. Uh, my plan would be to perform a muscle sparing um, posterior uh, thoracotomy. Um, the disadvantage of this approach is that it gives you less anterior exposure. However, you can always divide muscle and move more anteriorly if necessary. I find, however, that with a, a nice uh, um, uh, muscle sparing thoracotomy, however, you're able to expose all the anterior hilar structures without difficulty. So the first step, um, stick a scope in, make sure there's no evidence of carcinomatosis, then proceed with a fifth interspace um, uh, posterior thoric muscle sparing thoracotomy. Um, the first step is to uh, then kind of get just palpate the hilum and get an idea of where the mass is. Critical in that is making sure that you have proximal access to the pulmonary artery um, because if this um, if the mass extends up onto um, into the main pulmonary artery, obviously you don't have a margin and you may have to abort the case or consider doing something more radical such as an on-bypass um, resection with um, pulmonary artery reconstruction. So I would first um, mobilize the hilar structures and assure that I have good uh, proximal pulmonary arterial control. Um, also then uh, mobilize the, the veins um, and in doing so, perform a fairly extensive lymphadenectomy. Um, certainly in the left side, you have to be conscious of uh, the, the recurrent laryngeal nerve. That is one of the things um, that you certainly want to avoid injuring and therefore um, be cautious with uh, your lymphadenectomy in the AP window and using cautery in close proximity to the, the aorta as the nerve uh, runs on the underside of the aorta. So once you have the front of the hilum exposed, then flip posteriorly. I also bring up, as part of this, you're bringing up the ligament, but you're also, again, just mobilizing all of the structures. My preference is to get circumferential axis around the proximal pulmonary artery and then do a test clamp um, um, and, and then hold that either a clamp or, a, um, or some type of um, uh, uh, vessel loop around the artery to occlude the left artery and assure that you have a hemodynamically stable patient. Um, I have yet to have an unstable patient where we felt we had to abort the surgery. Um, but the, and the importance in doing this is that you don't do it after you started dividing veins because you've already committed then to the resection if you've divided the veins. So once you've completed that, then um, you can take the vessels really in any order um, my preference is to take uh, the superior vein, then take the 
uh, left main pulmonary artery, then take the inferior vein so that I've always preserved some outflow, and then at the end, um, take the airway. Now on the left side, one of the real tricks to taking the airway is to dissect aggressively up the airway so that you're, you actually are visualizing the right main stem bronchus. And what you want to do is place your uh, stapler across the airway and then retract the, lung, the lobe, pull the lobe up into the stapler to the point where your stapler is almost flush with the right main stem. Um, the goal of that is to obviously um, prevent any long stump on the left side. Um, and you can place a fair amount of tension on the, on the lobe once you're down to just the airway. Um, so once we've divided the airway, we take out the specimen that's sent for pathologic review of uh, margins. Um, typically on the left, the um, uh, stump has retracted into the mediastinum fairly far. Uh, we will try to mobilize tissue over the stump, and that can be done with pericardial fat, um, pericardium itself, or just bringing together the mediastinal tissue, again, taking care not to injure the recurrent laryngeal nerve. I'm not a huge fan of using um, intercostal muscles with pneumonectomies unless absolutely necessary because, one, it can create a fistula to the chest wall, and um, uh, number two, patients with intercostal muscles in my experience, uh, muscle flaps in my experience tend to have um, much higher uh, risk of uh, chronic postoperative pain. So I try to use any other tissue that's available. Um, uh, then, uh, finally, you would do additional lymphadenectomy. Now, on the left side, you would, we've already done the five, six nodes. To get to the right main stem bronchus, we've taken sevens. So, really, there's, there's not much left to take other than if you found any inferior pulmonary ligament nodes, but you should clean out the nodes as best possible. As far as how to close the chest, there are various um, techniques for leaving drainage tubes in the pneumonectomy space. Um, technique number one is to leave a chest tube in the pneumonectomy space with a pneumonectomy vac, and it's a specific um, vac that has uh, stabilizing chambers for positive and negative pressure, so it looks like two water seal chambers. Um, that is a, a reasonable option if you have those vacs. Alternatively, um, what the standard practice at the Cleveland Clinic has been to place a, a a Robnell catheter, I think it's an 18 French, uh, Robnell catheter into the chest and use that to allow um, for addition or subtraction of air for mediastinal equalization. Um, the downside of using the Robnell is you don't have a drainage tube to detect bleeding. Um, the upside of the Robnell is you don't have a large tract draining out through a pneumonectomy space that can um, leak fluid once the drain, the tube is removed. Um, what we tend to do is um, clo then close the chest in layers, and then prior to uh, turning the patient, we extract um, an, a set amount of air from the chest to try to bring the mediastinum up to midline, and that tends to be anywhere from 600 cc's to a liter, depending on the size of the uh, patient and their gender. Um, um, I have in other institutions where pneumonectomy vacs were available, use those, and I think that's equally as fine. I think some people would just close and would do needle aspiration for mediastinal equalization, um, and that's also an alternative. 
Great. Um, so let's say the morning after a left laminectomy for that patient, um, he develops uh, progressive hypotension. Um, what is your uh, approach? So um, major concern number one would be uh, bleeding. Um, we have our, and that can be detected by um, obviously the typicals of uh, getting uh, a CBC, getting a, ch a stat chest X-ray to look for a rising level in the chest, and aspirating on the rhabdo catheter to see if you get pure blood back. Furthermore, uh, there is the possibility of having mediastinal shift that can cause um, compromise to inflow into the heart, uh, essentially kinking the inferior uh, superior vena cava. And so if the patient has shifted, then um, adding or subtracting air from the pneumonectomy space to, um, to recenter the mediastinum. Um, um, I've, I've never had that experience before where they've uh, shifted. Um, but the, the major concern would be bleeding, and then you'd have to go down the pathway of other um, causes of hypotension. And, um, the most feared would be a, a pulmonary embolus, uh, which could be, which could be a, a terminal event in a patient with only one lung, and obviously cardiac causes. Another possibility would be um, tamponade um, if the pericardium was left closed and somehow there's bleeding into the pericardial space. Epidural could be another. Epidural. That's the easy one. Right. Um, also, um, let's say three days after a right pneumonectomy, uh, a patient is noted to have a new left lower lobe infiltrate, cough, frothy sputum, and respiratory failure. How would you like to proceed with that? Um, first of all, I'm very frightened because this is a potentially lethal complication. Um, uh, differential would include, um, number one would be um, pneumonia. Number two would be uh, a bronchopleural fistula with cross-contamination of fluid from the right chest into the left, causing a, um, a um, pneumonia. Um, we, I would begin with, um, if they're having tr true respiratory failure, they're going to need um, to be reintubated. Um, we would have to reintubate and then um, investigate uh, the, the stump with a um, bronchoscopy. We would also have to be conscious that if they are reintubated and they have some sort of fistula, um, that you could pressurize the pneumonectomy space and cause problems with tension pneumothorax. So, um, whatever, if you don't have um, any kind of access to that space, you may need to get it quickly. Um, the alternative in that circumstance is to intubate and then to let and then to main stem on the side that's effective to control for that um, while you're making plans. Um, so the key to that, I think, is being able to intubate but have a bronchoscopy present. Um, from there, then it would be an assessment, is the stump um, intact? And then uh, go to the left side and aspirate whatever you can, send cultures. Um, that would be my initial approach. All right, great. So let's say um, a patient six weeks uh, post-lap pneumonectomy presents the clinic with fever, neonic cough, and uh, productive of blood-tinged sputum. Chest X-ray reveals a declining air fluid level in the left hemithorax. OB or management. So obviously, this is the the clinical scenario of a bronchopleural fistula, and this needs to be addressed emergently. Um, uh, initial steps in stabilization are to decompress the pneumonectomy space um, so that you do not experience further cross contamination. 
until that is possible, you keep the patient with their pneumonectomy space in the um, independently so that gravity is not favoring fluid flowing out of the space and into the contralateral lung. And then as quickly as possible, place a chest tube into the pneumonectomy space to um, drain that fluid. Um, the next step is um, to, you have two problems here, and this is sometimes people think they only have one problem, and that is that there's a hole in the airway. Essentially, however, you have, the two problems are you have a hole in the airway and you have a contaminated pneumonectomy space. So unfortunately, the best option in this circumstance is typically a Claggett window for conservative management. You can't attempt at six weeks to go back and reoperate on the hilum and close this. Um, um, the stump can be very dangerous because oftentimes at that point, you have no anatomic landmarks. It's just a flat surface with a hole in it and you have no idea where the, the, the PA stump is in there. And if you try to dissect out the airway, you could get into the PA and that could be catastrophic. So um, the conservative route would be a Claggett window in this circumstance and then contemplate options for um, number no, address the bronchopleural fistula. And, and if you can correct that, then you can consider Claggett closure down the line. So let's say on um, preoperative imaging, the tumor uh, seemed to be invading the chest wall, the pericardium, adventitia of the aorta, superficial <laughs> muscle of the esophagus or focal areas of the SVC. So chest wall pneumonectomy um, can be done. It, um, the big challenge there is that you have the fluid from the pneumonectomy space kind of freely communicating with the um, chest wall wound um, and it can create these big seromas. So um, it's an awfully big operation that you need to have a fairly vital person for to get through. Pericardium, not a big deal. Adventitia of the aorta, I think that's a clinical judgment. Oftentimes, you can get an MRI to try to get a better look at where the tumor is in location in proximity to the, a to the aorta. Uh, but oftentimes, it simply needs a direct visual inspection to determine whether or not there is any um, frank invasion. Uh, typical, most often in these circumstances, you can get in an extrapleural plane and separate the tumor away from the aorta unless there's obvious radiographic evidence of invasion or there's circumferential involvement. Um, you can always have, um, if it's very focal involvement, you can also consider having an aortic surgeon on backup and consider doing a focal aortic resection, although again, that significantly adds to the complexity of the operation. Uh, superficial muscle, the esophagus, uh, you have to be very cautious with doing that. Um, I have seen post-pneumonectomy fistulas, esophago-pleural fistulas related to this process. Unless it's very easy to separate, I would consider that a reason not to go, proceed on with resection. Focal area of SVC involvement can be addressed with a, a focal resection reconstruction. Um, depending on how big of a it, it, uh, section it is, you may have to use bypass temporarily for that. Okay. And um, one of the last scenario we have, let's say that the tumor is shown to be um, involving the proximal vagus nerve on the left side. So the, that, in that circumstance, the vagus nerve on the left comes out, unless obviously the patient has some sort of pathology on the right that where they have a right-sided um, vocal cord paralysis. The issue is postoperatively, you just simply need to anticipate that the patient is going to have uh, problems with their vocal cord 
uh, focal cord dysfunction, the most serious of which is an inability to effectively cough because the cords can't oppose. Uh, so what I do in this circumstance is I, when I walk out of the operating room, the first thing I do is I call my ENT colleagues and have them um, come over and see the patient right away um, to consider doing a bedside medialization, which can temporize measures if the patient has an ineffective cough, and then address um, uh, a more permanent medialization down the road. Oh, great. That's very helpful. Thank you so much for sure. your Sure. My pleasure.